Hebrews this morning. Uh, Scott, who's been on the guitar, is going to come and preach for us in just a second, but I'm going to read the passage, give him a chance to gather his thoughts and his notes. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, we've prayed already, so let me read to us. Page 1003, Hebrews chapter 5, and starting at verse 11. Our writers just said that Jesus is a faithful high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 11, he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of, dead, of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God." But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. He did warn us earlier on he was going to do that. Don't worry. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to Paul's, and let me thank him for reading, and thank uh, Cody for praying for us as we read and study God's Word together. I hope you've all had a, a good week since our time in Hebrews last Sunday. Over the course of the past seven days, I saw an advert for the first time pop up this week for something I suspect will begin to appear on our screens and in other places over the next few months, and that is the Summer Olympic Games, which are scheduled to take part in Paris. And they begin on the 26th of July in a mere 152 days' time. Now, I suspect that training for the Olympic Games has already begun for many an athlete. It's well underway, if indeed it ever stops. And if we were to go and visit their training villages, just to observe what the athletes did. I imagine we'd expect to see quite a variety of different sorts of activities. So we'd expect to see the basics. We'd expect to see the repetition of the basics. But if these athletes really, really want to press on in their sport, if they really, really want to be top of their game, we'd expect to see them living and practicing in a way that demonstrates a real desire to grow a real desire to grow beyond their elementary training onto the sort of material that's really going to help keep them going and compete to the end of the competition. So imagine our surprise if all of that was missing. Or imagine our surprise if all we saw was the very basic set of exercises done again and again and again. A javelin thrower who only ever does jumping jacks. A boxer who only ever skips on the spot or a swimmer that only ever watches videos of the backstroke rather than diving into the pool to practice. We'd perhaps rightly be concerned at their prospects. We'd wonder what their reluctance was to really build on those foundations and to grow as athletes. And this morning in Hebrews, rather than walking into an Olympic training village, we're spending time with a young group of believers, or a group of young believers rather, who have made an encouraging start to the Christian life as they follow Jesus. But a combination of external pressure and internal sin has caused them to begin to feel spiritually tired, feeling the tug to drift away from the intensity of following Jesus all of the time, all of their life. They're facing a real temptation just to take even a short breather from following Jesus in the way that they are. And the author of Hebrews knows how dangerous that is. He knows how dangerous that could be. And so he writes this letter to them. And we saw last week the wonderful news that help is available for the flagging believer. In the risen Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have not only a great prophet, but a great high priestly king, a great royal high priest who took on flesh, as Cody was praying, who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and trials, appointed, placed by God to be the perfect eternal mediator that we need, who beckons us forward to the throne of grace, who supplies us with everything that we need to hold fast to our confessions. And in these verses today, we see that there is even more to learn. 
we see that there is even more to enjoy about this great high priestly king in the order of Melchizedek. We see that in verse 11. The author of Hebrews has much to say about this reality, much to say about Jesus being our enthroned mediator, much to say about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, much that will encourage, much that will embolden these leaders to keep going, these believers rather, to keep going. But there's a problem. See, the author of Hebrews says, verse 11 again of chapter 5, that these things are hard to explain to them because the Christians to whom he writes have become dull of hearing. See, he assesses the spiritual condition of the Christians to whom he writes, and he doesn't see much evidence of any growth beyond what he calls, chapter 6, verse 1, the elementary doctrine of Christ. This is a group of Christians that have been unwilling or unable to mature in the gospel, perhaps both. They're still stuck on spiritual warm-ups. They're still stuck on spiritual jumping jacks. So what does Coach Hebrews want for these believers? Well, verse 11 of chapter 6, he wants each of them to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope unto the end. That's his goal for them. That's his goal for the believers. To keep going, to keep growing in the gospel of Jesus, and to look forward in hope to the end where we see Christ face to face. And to make this not just a one-off, but something that we do every single day of our lives. So there are two big headings that the author of the letter wants the believer to understand, and we'll look at each of them in turn. The first one is on the screen there. Chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12, the author commands and calls the believers to grow eagerly in the gospel, to grow eagerly in the gospel. The author says to these believers in verse 12 that they ought to be teachers by now. That's the stage that they should have reached in their walk with Jesus. He doesn't necessarily expect them to lead churches, to lead small groups, to do one-to-ones at this stage. But he would want to see the Christians in the church growing to the point where they're able to pass on the gospel to others. To have reached the point where they're able to help one another, perhaps even to help newer or younger believers in the faith. To understand the riches and the richness of Christ better and better. That's such a necessary ingredient for any believer as they strive to enter the rest that God promises us that we together regularly, we teach, we remind one another of what God's word says to us. It's a rather attractive picture, I think, of a church family where everyone is able to gospel one another in a whole manner of different ways, to pass on the truth of Jesus to those around about them, both inside and outside of a church family. And the author would also expect these Christians to be mature in verse 14, to have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And again, that's such another vital part of pressing on together in the faith. Having a church family that separates the sorts of good things which will help them to run with endurance from the evil that will hinder them and hold them back, the sorts of things they want to refute or dismiss. But instead, these new believers, verse 12, they need to be taught again the basic principles. 
Instead, these believers, verse 13, are unskilled in the word of righteousness, still children. And as we've touched on already, this seems to stem from our reluctance to leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and to really go on towards maturity. And as we explore what's going on here, it's important to remember the pressure felt by these fledgling believers, a pressure from both local authorities and religious authorities to have worshipped God in a way that was a bit more mainstream, more similar to the cultural Judaism of the day. And the author of Hebrews mentions a list of things in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, upon which these Christians seem to be kind of stuck. And so he warns against laying again a foundation of these things. And in many ways, it's a list of things that would have been very, very safe for these believers to focus on. Things that would have made their lives a lot easier if they just spent time on these things and nothing else. So if you had asked them 2,000 years ago in their context, if you'd said to these fledgling believers, these new Christians, what this Christianity thing was all about that they were following, they had perhaps the possibility or the tendency to respond by saying something like, well, it's all about repentance from dead works. It's all about faith towards God. It's all about washings, such as baptism. It's all about the laying on of hands to recognize those in authority. It's all about the resurrection of the dead, and it's all about eternal judgment. Just those things listed there in those verses. If those were the things that they had said Christianity was all about, Christianity would not have sounded all that different. It would not have sounded all that culturally offensive to a listening Jewish audience. Now, these are all real and important aspects of Christian faith. These are real and important aspects of Christian living but they could sound very similar to Jewish convictions, at least on the surface level. They could sound very similar to Jewish beliefs and practices. And so to say that Christianity is about these things mentioned here in these verses, that's not going to ruffle too many feathers around about them. See, there's every possibility that these believers were reluctant to mature in Christ because to do so would have meant to look increasingly different from the world around about them. See, the problem is not a lack of intelligence on the part of these Christians. The author is not questioning their brain power. The author is not questioning their ability to grasp the gospel. He's not even questioning their ability to grasp the deeper things of Christ. But he's instead questioning their hunger to grow in the gospel. If it means that they might then have to live and speak the gospel in a way that might cause some people around about them to flinch. I imagine we know what that feels like sometimes as followers of Christ. I imagine it's tempting in conversations that we have just to focus on the aspects of the gospel that we believe that would make our faith sound like the sort of thing our world might even nod along with. So if we only ever speak about the wonderful reality of God's love and how Christians are to love others sacrificially, how Jesus was a good example for us to follow, and if we reduce the gospel to just these things and never looked at or listened to or spoke about anything beyond that. You can see how our society today might nod along, but how our growth might be minimal as believers. See, the author doesn't say, leave behind the doctrine of Christ. That's something other letters in the New Testament warn against. 
And instead, he calls them to grow within the gospel of Christ, beyond the elementary level. The author's warning is that a reluctance to do that, a reluctance to grow in that way, might mean that in the long run, the individual reveals himself or herself to be one who falls away from the gospel, who falls away from the truth of Jesus, the royal high priest, to the point where it's clear that they are not standing in his salvation. And the author contrasts two groups for us in the rest of this first section. The first is in verses 4 to 8. And the language in these verses sounds very similar to the wilderness generation that the author of Hebrews has already introduced us to in previous chapters, chapter 3. He's already warned us about them. The language in these verses sounds like those who wandered around in the wilderness thousands of years before the letter was written, after God's rescue from Egypt through Moses. Those who wandered because of their disobedience. They were enlightened as they saw God at work. They tasted the heavenly gift of God's redemption, provision in the desert. The Spirit was at work to lead them, to teach them God's law, to guide them, only for them to harden their hearts, to refuse to listen to God's word, to refuse to live as his people. And I'm sure we can think of people like this. I'm sure we can think of people who have come along to church perhaps for years and years, perhaps decades, who have tasted and shared in something of the work and the spirit of God as the truth of Christ is presented to them every single week, as they see the love and the care of a gospel church family, and yet they persistently, stubbornly refuse Jesus. They refuse to draw near to the throne of grace. They refuse to grow in the gospel at all. They, says the author of Hebrews, have fallen away. Perhaps having understood the gospel, perhaps even being able to explain it to others, they've walked away from the power of God at work in the life of a church community, deliberately rejecting Jesus, deliberately rejecting the gospel, never to return. It's a determined rejection of God throughout their lives from which there is no coming back. They stand, says the author of Hebrews, guilty and condemned, verse 6, as if they are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. And they prove, verse 8, to be land that bears thorns and thistles. Now, God can bring anyone into his kingdom at any point throughout their lives. I know men and women that have made clear commitments to Christ in their 60s, 70s, 80s, one lady in her 90s, as we were hearing about this morning. These sorts of miracles can take place at any given moment in anyone's life, but not for everyone. The sort of thing that these verses describe is very much the sort of thing that can and does happen in our churches today. It's a sobering reality. And if you feel the sobriety of these verses, then I think that's how the author would want you to feel. But if you're a Christian here this morning, this isn't who you are. Not according to the writer of the letter. See, we are not to read ourselves into the group described in verses 4 to 8. You and I belong in the second group mentioned in verses 9 through to 12. So before the mobile and broadband company EE became EE, it existed in part as a British phone network named Orange. I think it still exists 
in some countries outside of the UK. And they had an advert on TV once where they showed a series of short clips of a very, very optimistic future. At least from their perspective, a really, really optimistic future. There happened to be a lot of tech in this really, really optimistic future. And at the end of the advert, the voiceover says, the future is bright, the future is orange. It's slightly dystopian. And the author of Hebrews has a much, much better message for the reader than this. See, he says to the believer that the future is bright. The future is not orange, thankfully, but instead the hope of salvation until the end. Verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And he exhorts the Christian to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that they may not be sluggish, but instead imitators of those throughout history who, unlike the world in this generation, through faith and patience, inherit the promises that God makes. See, the author of Hebrews is sure that for the repentant believer, for you and me as we sit here trusting in Jesus, as frail and as flagging as we might be as we draw near to the throne of grace for God's mercy and God's help, God will not overlook us. So you and I can earnestly know the full assurance of hope in a God who has a really, really good track record throughout history of giving his people his promises. Promises of eternal forgiveness, promises of eternal rest, as he then sustains them through faithful, patient lives. See, Hebrews says, if you're a Christian, that is your story. We are the land, in verse 7, which has drunk the rain and produced a crop. Not because we're good, not because our faith is strong as sustained by us, but because God has been kind to us and God has kept us. So as you read these verses this morning, Christian, do not lose any assurance. In fact, these verses, if anything, they encourage us to grow in our assurance. And I've quickly summarized what the life of a believer with growing assurance might look like. And it's the four subpoints on the screen there. We firstly listen eagerly to God. That's something that Hebrews encourages us to do time and time again, to listen eagerly to Jesus as the one who can and will sustain us for eternal life, rather than allowing our growth to be stunted or inhibited by a fear of the world in which we live. We love one another earnestly, teaching one another, gospeling one another, developing our discernment between good and evil. We learn earnestly. We leave behind the elementary teaching of Jesus, building on that, growing on that, through that, wanting to know more about the gospel in books like Exodus on a Sunday evening, Micah on a Wednesday and a Thursday night, growing in our hunger to spiritually sink our teeth into the written word of God, even if it means we begin to feel the fury of the world as they watch on. And then we look forward earnestly, knowing God will supply us with the faith and the patience that we need as we cross the line into God's rest as fast as we can at full speed, not becoming sluggish, 
in our walk with the Lord, not limping across the finish line. And as we practice these things together as a church, the more solid our trust will be in God and his promises. And the more solid our trust in God and his promises, the more we will know the gift that he gives us of a real deep-rooted assurance. And the more we will live our faith out maturely in front of others. It's the first thing for us to see this morning. We keep going by keeping on growing. And then secondly, lastly, and just with the few minutes that we have remaining, we keep going to the end by grasping how certain our hope is. We keep going to the end by grasping just how certain our hope is. Um, during the pandemic, I kept on hearing conversations taking place about the triple lock pension scheme that exists in the UK. And after sort of half listening to the conversations, I realized that I had absolutely no idea of what a triple lock pension scheme was. So I did some reading. Having done that reading, I'm still not sure I know what a triple lock pension scheme or system is. Having listened to the politicians that speak about it, I'm not convinced that they know what a triple lock pension scheme or system is. I believe it's a system where three things, three factors are supposed to kick in when necessary to keep our pensions secure until the end when we need it amidst the rising cost of living. Correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. And as the Christian strives to enter God's rest, here is the eternal divine triple lock system that Hebrews offers us. One that we can trust in to keep our hope secure to the end, despite the rising pressure that we feel as believers. The first two, the two things that are mentioned uh, in Hebrews chapter 6 are God's character and his oath in verses 13 to 18. It's God's character and his oath. God swears by his own character as he makes an oath to Abraham, the one that Rebecca read out for us earlier on. He makes an oath to Abraham that he will bless him and multiply his offspring. And as Abraham waits patiently for that to happen, trusting in God's oath, trusting in God's character, he obtains that promise. You can see, can't you, how there would be no point in someone swearing by something that looks uncertain or unlikely, something inferior to them. That's the point in verse 16. If you want to show that you're telling the truth, if you want people to believe you, you swear by something or someone greater than yourself. And since there never was, nor will there ever be anyone greater than God, as he offers his people hope, he doesn't swear his oaths by something uncertain or changeable, but he swears his oath by himself, by his own character. And so then he is glorified as a God who is faithful, committed to his people, when he then brings these oaths and promises to pass. Our God cannot lie, says Hebrews. His word is as good as he is. And as we flee to him for refuge, to use the words of chapter 6, as we flee to him for refuge, we find that his promises are as consistently and as historically unshakable, immovable, as he is himself, unshakable, immovable. And Abraham stands as perhaps the best example of someone that we should imitate, as verse 12 tells us to, to imitate those. Just think of all the other Christians in our lives, in our town, throughout the generations, to see 
who have seen that um, God is faithful in their own lives, the sea of people across the world throughout the years that reveal to us that God has been faithful to Abraham, giving him an innumerable family of followers of Christ. And as we wait patiently like Abraham did, we do so in the full assurance that God will bring fulfillment to our hope, just as he did for Abraham. Hope of rest, hope of eternal forgiveness, hope of joy with our God forevermore. So that's part one and two of the triple lock. The third part is in verses 19 and 20. Our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. Sure and steadfast, not because of how strong we are. Sure and steadfast, not because of how steady our own faith feels at times. But sure and steadfast because of where that hope is found. So verse 19 again, our hope is an anchor that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf as our eternal high priest. See, Jesus has blazed a trail going behind the curtain, a curtain that has historically represented the separation between us and the Lord that is there because of our sin and our iniquity against him. And as Jesus enters that area and as he intercedes for us in there as our high priest, it's as if he then turns and invites our hope to enter in after him, to follow him in there and to land exactly where he is on him as our eternal mediator and king. I think it's really, really easy for us as the world tells us to keep our faith culturally relative, to keep our faith reasonable, to not take Jesus too seriously. As we lose spiritual stamina, it's really easy for us to think that God's promises might not actually come to pass. It's easy to think that the fulfillment of our hope is weak. The prospects don't look good, as weak as we feel sometimes. And yet the reminder from Hebrews this morning is that as steadfast and as certain as Christ is risen and ascended, so is our hope. He smiles at us from that place, through the curtain, at the throne of grace, saying, let me go first and then follow me in there. So those are the three things that give us such a certain hope. God's character, his inability not to keep his oaths, and our kingly priest Jesus, who pioneers the way right into God's presence, where we could never hope to be on our own merit, where we could never gain an audience because of our own sinfulness, but where we can be and where our hope is, thanks to him. And with all that in mind, it would be inconceivable for the author of Hebrews, surely inconceivable even for the worn-out believer, to think to wander away from this Jesus or to seek hope elsewhere, even if it would bring us some short-term relief from the difficulties that we face as those who trust in Jesus. What could offer us a more certain assurance than our great high priest and king? Where else could we turn? What could anyone offer us outside of him? What do we need that he cannot meet? Hebrews says, consider Christ, hold fast to the hope set before us, keep going and keep growing in this Christ, knowing just how certain our hope is 
knowing the full assurance of Jesus, thanks to who he is and all that he has done for all who trust in him. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you so much for Christ, the high priest that we need. He who has gone through the curtain, who has been our forerunner, and in whom we place our hope, and in whom we can know the full assurance that we are forgiven, that we are your people, and that we stand in the place of salvation that you have placed us. Father, please help each and every single one of us to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Stop us from being sluggish. Help us instead to flee to you for refuge and to hold fast to the hope set before us. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.